In Eastertide, our readings from the New Testament have come from Revelation. Revelation is a book all about God's purposes. After all the ups and downs of human history, these purposes finally coming to fruition. But for 2,000 years since Christians have been reading this book, we read it kind of angsty. Because underneath these huge promises squirm various questions of life. It brings to mind lots of hard and confusing issues and exposes the human tension we all live with. For instance, between the wounds we carry and the longing for healing. Or the burdensome responsibilities that some of us face day in and day out. And the hunger for relief. Or the awareness of sin and frailty and the seeking of assurance. And I was thinking this weekend, I can only speak for myself and my generation, but lots of us in this room at least are from my generation. If you weren't, I think you can hear me anyway. I know in my generation, we've tried to kind of fix that inner conflict and tried to create our, our own fulfillment. When I think of the 60s and the sexual revolution, but come on, you don't have to be a sociologist or a sexiologist to realize that the last 50 years has not produced a happy, fulfilled, and well-adjusted nation. Even though now you can pretty much do whatever you want with whoever you want. But where's the happiness? The true groundedness. The freedom we actually thought we were bringing. By saying, oh, divorce is not such a big deal. Or, oh, this isn't such a big deal. Remember the 60s? <laughs> or consumerism. Manipulated by marketing and facilitated by easy credit. Has it really satisfied our deepest longings? Or technology and its promise of easy information and constant connectivity. Studies are showing over and over and over again that it's actually leaving us connected people more lonely than we were 30 years ago when the information age started. Or entertainment, or novelty, or seeking various stimulations is leaving us what my friend Archibald Hart calls thrilled to death. That is to say, unable to experience pleasure in simple things. And again, study after study showing that too much entertainment actually makes us profoundly bored and even depressed. And in that depressed state, too weak or distracted to actually embrace the ordinary wonders of life. But against that backdrop stands the testimony of Revelation and its great invitation to, as best said, to peer through the window of the book of Revelation, to let it be the source of seeing something other than the tensions we feel. Just look out the windows next to you. See how they allow you to see a different reality? And this is what Revelation invites us to. That in the same way that these windows surround us, there is a life in God available to us, all around us, all the time. And then the invitation is then to find it and to learn to derive our life from it and to articulate it and to invite others into it. Maybe you know the name Flannery O'Connor, the Catholic writer, who once told a young friend struggling to follow God, push as hard to follow Christ as your age pushes against you. 
And it just helps us think that the place of our formation, the place of following Jesus, is in the anonymous monotony of our daily routines with our neighbors and our coworkers, learning to find God in his kingdom there. And this means that we have to learn to accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. Your life as you presently know it, with its rhythms and routines, is the only place where you're going to find spiritual progress. Spiritual progress does not come in a hoped-for future, like, well, when I finally graduate, or when I finally get that promotion. Dallas Willard used to say, God is yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. Right? Think about it. Where else would God bless you? And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation like, well, so-and-so's sick, this can't be the place where God blesses me. Well, my company's not doing good, so this can't be the place where God blesses me. Or I'm at odds with a friend, so this can't be the moment in which God blesses me. And we begin to just set aside virtually every moment of life. Except for the random place of ecstasy or something where everything seemed perfect, and then we think, well, maybe here is a place that God can bless me. But if we just discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being the right place for God to bless us, we'll simply have no place to receive his kingdom life. His kingdom life comes to us in the anonymous monotony of our daily lives. And what Revelation does, and the reason we read it every three years in Easter, during Easter time, is it helps us look through these windows and wonder what is ultimate reality. And the testimony of Jesus and the Gospels and the testimony of the book of Revelation is that what is ultimately real is God and his kingdom. I mean, think of this amazing overarching language, I am the A to Z, in case you don't know Greek. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the final, the beginning and the conclusion. Could there be any more totalizing language? Could you find any other more hopeful language to catch up your actual life? Like if God's blessing to you is from bust to great prosperity, from great health, to medical problems, if he really is the A to Z, then you don't have to wish away your life. You can know that there's always a window for, from through which you can see that which is really real, God in his kingdom. And how that capital R reality, I often say, is what allows you to make sense of the lowercase r's of a good and bad and up and down life. But in our pluralistic society, this, this totalizing notion of A to Z, first and final, beginning and conclusion, it's getting harder and harder to claim, right? That's a claim that's getting harder and harder to make. It seems, at minimum, impolite, right? It seems when we say stuff like that that we're making arrogant claims for our knowledge. They're like, well, we have superior knowledge than 8th century Asia. 
or we have superior knowledge to ancient religions like Zoroastrianism, right? It seems like, well, who are you to say that you have that kind of knowledge? And part of the reason that it's instinctually rejected is that it feels to others like we're making a special status for our group. But we're kind of left with this. Right? Are you feeling me here? We are left with this. And we either say, well, those are nice sort of religious words, but they don't actually mean anything. You can't actually live your life according to Jesus being the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Like that, that can't be the basis for a coherent Christian spirituality because, well, as soon as we begin to do that, all these social problems come to our minds. But I want you to look at your text in Revelation for me, if you would. And I don't have it in front of me, but find the line where it says this. I, Jesus, gave you this testimony. Do you see that line? I, Jesus, gave you this testimony. What's the next word? For the churches. This revelation was given precisely for you. Precisely so that you could have a, an overarching ability to do life. So that when you have the bees, what comes right before Z, X, Y? When you have the bees through the Ys, they're all made sense by the A and the Z. Are you feeling me? That everything that comes into a human life has the potential to have, have it be coherent and, and make sense and and find faith and peace and groundedness and hopefulness in this A and Z. So when Jesus says, I've given this testimony precisely to Christians who had come, it's given so that we can have a story that would engender a persistent hope. And out of that steadfast hope, a steadfast discipleship. So, I mean, if I, like, I don't usually give advice in sermons, but if I was to give you a little pastoral advice, this would be it. Don't diss the A to Z. Don't let people's fear that we're making arrogant claims for ourselves make you stop believing it. Hang on to it with humility. You'd just be shocked at how far a little humility would go. Or a little meekness. You know, meekness was an attribute of the greatest heroes of the Bible, of Moses. And of the Lord of history, Jesus, was said to be the meekest of all. Look at me. Meek does not mean weak. Meek means stupendous ethics given how much power you have. Given the power associated with the deliverer of Israel and given the power to the Lord of history incarnate in a human being, when one yields that power with great ethics, great spiritual morality, that person's meek. And this is, I think, the path for us. In fact, if you look at your, your reading in the Gospels, John 17, Jesus prayed that we would actually have this kind of connection to him and his power and his weakness. This is what he wanted when he prays that we would actually be in the life of the Trinity and in God's purposes. 
I mean, Jesus is again here precisely thinking of you and me when he says those two little words that Beth pointed out to you, I desire. Now, can we just stop here for a second and think together? This is an astounding window into the heart of God Almighty incarnate. Think about how hard it is for some of you to even tell your spouse what you want. Right? Sometimes exposing your truest desires is really nerve-wracking, isn't it? Well, here we have a moment where Jesus is exposing what he wants. I desire that my followers and I, Father, would have a oneness of person and purpose in the same way that we have a oneness of purpose, sorry, person in the Trinity and purpose in history. And I want you to see this morning how this oneness of person and purpose is the goal of discipleship. This is the goal of Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality can never be the quest to simply get right ideas in our heads. As important as right ideas are. I mean, I'm a professor. I'm all about right ideas. And I've been teaching the Bible for 40 years. I'm all about getting it right. It's just that right ideas are always unto something. In the same way that you have a brush in order to paint or have a theory in order to solve problems or bathe paths in order to play a game, we have right doctrinal or right spiritual ideas unto following Jesus into the purposes of the Trinitarian God. This is Jesus' desire. And, and the vision he saw was that the effect of this would be that the world might believe that God sent him into the world. And then we come back to our reading in Revelation with this insistent cry that Travis helped us feel this morning. I mean, this is the, this, you know, Revelation has this uncanny authority, right? It's the last book of the Bible and it's talking about last things and so you get to the last bit of this last book and you have this insistent cry the spirit and the bride say, come. Come into this relationship. Come into God's purposes. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come and take the free gift of the water of life. And what's implicit here is that we would echo this calling of the spirit. And that our echo back would be an enthusiastic embrace of the message and the vision, the harmony of purpose and vision and values that Revelation has been talking about. This insistent invitation that ends the book of Revelation is an invitation to participate in the divine human relationship and purpose. And I might just say to you a little formational thought here that such participation, I think, is a really good definition of piety. Like, if you've lost your sense of, like, what is genuine piety? Like, what does a word like holiness even mean in a day like today? Well, this is a really good way to think about it. It's just giving your sense, yourself as God's cooperative friend to his purposes in history. In response to his presence and his initiation, we simply echo back when we hear the spirit and the bride say, come, we simply echo back, yes, Lord, I give you wholehearted, whole life response to what you're doing in the world. Maybe a way that might help you um, connect with this this morning or get into it is to th think this with me. 
We usually, when we're considering God, think of ourselves as the subject. Follow me here. God is the object of our thoughts, right? The object of our devotion. Sorry, our devotion. And that's not a bad thing. I don't mean to say it's bad. But for you to hear the cry of the Spirit this morning to come, what if we just flipped that and talked about something that's equally true? That God is subject. And we are the object of his love. We are the object of his focus in all of history. Kingdoms come and go. Palaces are built and destroyed by weather. Great women and men rise to power, only to be forgotten 100 years later. But God's purposes will stand forever. This is his initiation to us. And we're invited then to respond appropriately to being the object of such love. If you knew nothing else about Christian spirituality, if you only knew enough to say God is doing something in the world and I'm doing everything I can to appropriately respond to that as the object of his divine intention, doing everything I can to live a life compatible with God's divine design, you'd be pretty much on the right track. So John gave us this beautiful window into Jesus' heart. I desire. And then Revelation asks us, are you thirsty for what Jesus desires? This relationship and unity of purpose. You hear, come. No prerequisites, no limitations. Just a thirst for the living God and his active kingdom on the earth. This is grace. This is what grace is all about. It's perhaps the dearest longing of the human heart and the most difficult to accept. I can only speak for myself. Maybe you can join me. But too often I'm a bit like the older brother in the parable. Remember? Staying home, working hard, keeping out of trouble, and yet having a hard time valuing and receiving the love and grace of God. Maybe some of you like me who live like that are wondering, well, where's the party for me? I played right, tried to follow the rules, tried to do what was good. Where's the party for me? Me, the tireless one, the one striving to be faithful. But even to that person, God says, you are the object of my intention. So whether you're the younger brother, the younger sister squandering your life, or whether you're the older sister or the older brother trying to figure it out in other ways, to all of humanity, God says, in Christ, in my mercy to you, I am the A to Z, the beginning and end, the first and the last. So have a quiet time this morning. I wonder if you would take a moment here with me to wonder what it is that you desire. You heard what it is that Jesus desires. He desires that you would be with him the way he is with the Trinity. 
and that that Trinitarian relationship and consistency of purpose would mark your life. That's what Jesus desires for you. Well, what if you just wondered this morning for a moment, what is it that you desire? What is it that you thirst for? This is a safe moment now, just you and the Spirit, for you to be honest. And to know as the object of God's love, the object of God's grace, that he will meet you wherever you are, whatever the current status of your thirsts or desires. Just be honest and see what the Spirit might do.